periodically during the course of practice, it is helpful to take a look at things from a different perspective. And after a day of, or now a few days of, this close observation of moment-to-moment mental and physical whatever's arising, sometimes we can lose perspective on what it is we're doing here. And then there are other times when we're just kind of in the broad picture of things and we're just kind of you know, living life as a spiritual practice and we're not really on the ground kind of paying attention to the, the way that it's all unfolding. So tonight I wanted to step back a little bit and try to integrate both the the big view of what it is that we're we're doing here with this life on earth and what's that got to do with sitting on the cushion watching the breath so Mahasi Sayadaw is widely recognized as the kind of the 20th century leader of the tradition of practice that we teach from. And he said that the practice of insight meditation, he's quoting the Buddha said, quoting the Buddha and said, the practice of insight enables one to realize the ultimate nature of mind and body, to see their common characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and their impersonality, and to realize the Four Noble Truths. What the Buddha's pointing to with that acknowledgement is that it is only through awareness or mindfulness that we are going to be able to recognize the way things are. The true nature of this mind and this body, which feels so intimate, which feels so personal, which in one respect is all we know. It's all we have. It's all our life is, is this body and mind. And yet, there are so many ways of understanding what it is we're doing with this body and mind. We only have to look at the profusion of religions, philosophies, traditions of practice, understanding, and we can see that throughout the world and throughout human history, there have been many attempts to kind of pin it down or to articulate it in a way that seems to resonate with either that culture or that person or that group. And the Buddha too was one who took to discover what's the purpose of all this? What am I here for? Why why am I in this body? How can I make the best use of this human life? And, of course, at the time that the Buddha was living, or that the Bodhisattva was living in India, there was a tremendous um, interest in this question. What's the purpose of life? How to make use of life? How to understand life? How to be free of suffering? How to be uh, liberated? And of course the Buddha took the advice and the instruction from those who were considered wise at the time realized what they had to 
teach or what they were pointing towards, but understood within himself that that wasn't satisfactory for him. And through his own further practice and investigation, came to an understanding or realization of the truth or the way things are, which he found to be particularly helpful for disentangling his life, his mind, from suffering. You know, when you hear about different traditions or religions, often the goal or the purpose is articulated in pretty lofty terms. You know, freedom, union with God, uh, transcendence of something, uh, bliss, peace. And they're just, you know, they're, they're ways that humans have tried to articulate the, the goal, the highest, the, the most valuable. But the Buddha, in his articulation of the truth, talked about suffering and understanding suffering and thereby understanding the causes of suffering and realizing the end of suffering which seems a little counterintuitive initially. But I have noticed in my own life, and it, you know, even after, you know, 30 years of practice and trying to understand the Buddhist teachings and apply them in my life and to, to realize them in my own life, I'm amazed that I sometimes still will choose to suffer. You know, you get in a squabble with somebody and you have a choice. You can either insist on being right or you can stop suffering. I don't always choose on, I don't always choose to stop suffering. And it really amazes me that something could be more important than to stop suffering. I know how it feels, you know, to want to be right. I'm hoping I'll soon know what it feels to stop suffering. <laughs> but in the Buddha's uh, recognition or realization of the truth, he, he taught a path of practice to be developed for anyone to realize what he had realized. And this is the Fourth Noble Truth, and it's called the, the path to be developed for the end of suffering. And essentially, the Noble Eightfold Path is comprised of three training. In the first training, is a training in learning how to live in harmony. Well, there's a lot of suffering, inter interpersonal suffering, because we don't know how to live in harmony with one another. And so any training that would guide us in right relationship to minimize interpersonal suffering you would think would be a welcome relief. The Buddha's instruction for learning to live in harmony is to purify your speech and behavior. Because it is through speaking and acting in the world that we have the most immediate and direct impact on one another. And the three path factors, or the three practices, if you will, that comprise the training of learning to live in harmony are right speech, right action, and right livelihood. I'll speak a little more about them individually. 
But what these practices do is in purifying our speech and purifying our behavior, meaning purifying the intention behind our actions, what they do is we are addressing the the grossest forms of the defiled mind. When the defiled mind is acting out its greed, its aversion, its fear, its uh, stinginess, its arrogance, its whatever. And there are more than a few defilements that we can act out. When we're acting them out, it's when we are speaking and acting in relationship to others. And that's where a tremendous amount of of suffering and tension and confusion and pain comes in our life. Some of you have spoken about it today in your check-in of the the conditions in your life. You know, they come. You know, and it's not always your acting out of the grossest forms of defilements. It can be other people acting out the grossest forms of defilements. And it's due to carelessness of speaking and and acting. And so the Buddha said, this is this is an area of that needs attention. And if we pay attention, we can purify our speech and behavior of the defilements, which will create a base for uh, living in harmony with one another. I can't honestly say that it will uh, condition absolute harmony across the board in all your relationships, but it certainly helps. But even if we could practice living in harmony with one another uh, diligently and sensitively and in a very refined way, just not acting in a way that impacts others hurtfully, our mind can still be driven crazy with the defilements. In the privacy of our own quiet mind, (laughs) we can just be going nuts because the defilements, even if they're not being acted out, can be running rampant in our mind, obsessing our mind. And you know, I mean, we've all had the experience of, you know, thinking things that we would never dare to do. That's the obsessive defilements. The mind can be filled with rage, with all, uh, just imagining, you know, the way to get revenge. And yet, we'll never do it, because it's just, well, it might be illegal. (laughs) But... The mind can still be burning with that degree of defilement. Or not only aversion, it can be uh, pride, it can be uh, desire, it can be uh, lust, it can be fear, it can be just anything that the mind can be. You know, we can be paralyzed in fear even though the situation has never yet arisen. It's just the mind being filled with obsessive defilements. And so something other than speaking and acting carefully is obviously going to be needed in order to get a handle on this level of suffering. And for this, the Buddha taught taught calming the mind, learning how to calm the mind. And the, the tranquility practices are called samatha or samadhi or uh, concentration practices. Because the concentrated mind is the mind that is free of the defilements. That's what, that's what concentration means. It is free of the defilements, therefore it is calm, it is not obsessed. So, the path factors are the three conditions for 
developing samadhi or tranquility or the unobsessed mind are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. I'm going to speak about those also. Nevertheless, even if we're able to live in harmony, we're able to calm the mind, things change. Conditions change. Internal conditions change, external conditions change. And we can never be sure that we're not going to be provoked once again into some obsessive or transgressive acting on those defilements. And so the Buddha saw that there was always this possibility in the mind that these defilements, they're just there. They're just kind of waiting, kind of like a landmine or a mind mine. I like that, mind mine. It's just kind of mind mine. It's just kind of laying there in the mind. And if you just take one step off the, off the path, they explode in your mind. You're obsessed. You're acting out or you may... You may get obsessed, you may act out. And so life is insecure. We're forever vulnerable to conditions changing and we'll step on a mind mind. <laughs> so the Buddha understood that there was another, a more refined practice that was necessary to not only suppress the defilements, but to uproot them from the mind so that they never appear. It's like deactivating the mind-minds. Not just kind of avoiding them, but it's getting the sniffer dogs out and <laughs> getting them out so that we're not hobbling through life maimed by the damage that our mind-minds inflict on us. And for this, the Buddha understood that we need to not only purify our speech and behavior, how we act, not only purify our mind temporarily of these defilements, but we have to purify our understanding. And in the purifying of our understanding, we inhibit or we prevent the mind from resorting to wrong beliefs that allow the defilements into the mind. Well, this is, this is a really subtle surgery of the mind, if you will, where we're not only cutting out unwholesome intentions, but we're really looking at how do you understand the experiences of life in such a way the experiences of the body, the experiences of mind, in such a way that none of the defilements will ever arise in your mind. I mean, it's even hard to just imagine what that would be. How, how would you do that? Well, the Buddha, in his wisdom, said there are two conditions necessary to purify the mind's understanding. And they are having a right view, the right the right view of things, the right understanding of things, and to have thoughts and aspirations and attitudes that support it. So these three trainings of the mind, or three trainings of the Buddha's Eightfold Path, are to address the three grades, I guess, three grades, you could say, of defilements. The transgressive defilements, where we're acting them out against others, have, are inhibited by practicing right speech, right action, right livelihood. The obsessive defilements of the mind, where we're not acting them out, but we're suffering internally with them, are inhibited by the practice of samadhi, or calming the mind down. And the latent defilements, those, those mind minds that just lay there waiting for changed conditions, are uprooted from the mind through 
the purification of our understanding and the development of insight. I was recently editing, working on this book, still editing this book from Mahasi Sayadaw, and I, I came across this unbelievable statement where he said that in the, in the discourses of the Buddha and in the Buddhist psychology, the Abhidhamma, and in the commentaries, they have identified more than a thousand defilements. I thought it must be a misprint. It must be a hundred. I mean, a thousand? I mean, what? That's how deluded I am. <laughs> but, you know, they, you know, and then they gave a partial list. <laughs> you know, I mean, the familiar greed, hatred, and delusion, of course we know. But revenge, deceit, fraud, vanity, envy, domineering attitude, contempt, obstinacy, disdain, lack of conscience, lack of modesty. Well, this is just a few of the headlines, what's coming up. So, <laughs> I think I was surprised because I thought I was familiar with the, you know, the, the, the sources of suffering in my mind. And, I mean, I, I recognize, you know, I recognize these because they're, they're present, you know. And it's a little bit shameful to, um, or it's a little bit humbling to acknowledge, to read it and say, you know what, there's a defilement I've never recognized on my own. But once it's pointed out, I realize... <laughs> fully present you know, that's, the, that's, the whiz, that's the value of reading good Dharma books I mean I, I can't say it's I, I can't say it's pleasant but there is a value in it because you know you get, you get some subtle teachings and you know it does it does uh, it's humbling to, to, to take a more refined look at uh, this mind and the practice that we're engaged in to, to really come to understand this mind. So this Eightfold Path, or the Noble Eightfold Path, is uh, a path, and it's not a path to kind of follow so much as a path to be developed. There are these eight qualities of mind, you could call them eight trainings of mind, to be practiced, to be developed, to, to bring to some maturity, and to the extent that we do, of course, we are moving towards less suffering. I'd heard the Four Noble Truths, and I knew that there was a path, or I knew the Fourth Noble Truth was a path, but when I first started practicing with Upandita, I had been practicing for about eight or nine years. 84, 84, 75, yeah, nine years. And um, one time in, a, in an interview with him, I was telling him that, uh, you know, I was just doing my practice and uh, I was just expecting that someday, suddenly, I'd be enlightened. And he just roared with laughter. <laughs> he just roared like... I mean, he was, he was kind. <laughs> he wasn't like disrespectful and saying, you stupid idiot, like he probably could have. But, you know, he then patiently pointed out that it's not going to happen that way. <laughs> it's going to happen because of, you know, understanding and developing the understanding through practice. And you'll see it coming so to speak. You, you know the effort you make. You see the gradual uh, lessening of the defilements in the mind. You see the gradual, gradual decrease of uh, suffering. And you can see the direction that the mind is going, that your life is going. You may not know just when and how, but you know you're on a path. You can see the effect of developing the path. So it's it's important to understand that it is a path of development. It's a gradual path. And each of the factors, you know, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, right speech, right behavior, right livelihood, right thought, right view, 
they're all practices in and of themselves. Anything you do to develop any one of them supports your path, supports your way on the path. And they're all mutually, uh, reciprocally supportive. For example, the more you understand about practice, the more you understand about yourself, the more you understand your own suffering, the causes of your suffering, the more interest you're going to have in practicing. The more interest you have, the more effort you'll make. The more effort you make, the more mindful you'll become. The greater the continuity of mindfulness, the deeper the concentration. The more, the deeper the concentration, the more powerful the mind, the more you will see and understand. And so it is a cyclic, uh, reciprocally supportive path. They all support each other. Anything you do for one supports all the rest. It is wrong to think that they're sequential and that you must develop one before the other. You can start anywhere and work on anything at any time. And it'll be supportive. What is um, sometimes not recognized, or let's say that there are two ways of of understanding and approaching the, the Noble Eightfold Path. And one way is to see these eight factors as big topics to be developed in life. And the other way is to see that each of these eight path factors arise or can be conditioned or you can be trained, train yourself to arouse them in each moment. Since we're here practicing this moment-to-moment awareness, I want to show, or I want to speak about the path factors in terms of how they're arising in each moment of our practice here. Not in the big picture, but in the small picture. Because if in every moment of our practice we are developing all of the path factors, what are we missing? It's all there. In each moment, all the path factors are there. There's nothing more to be done to develop the path. Sure, it's the continuity of our development that strengthens and that brings them into every facet of our life. But in that moment, if all the path factors are there, there's nothing more to be done. That's why coming on a retreat or doing a formal practice is so valuable. It is time spent developing the path, strengthening these uh, qualities, strengthening these practices, strengthening our understanding. And it's, it's time well spent in that we aren't just out distracting ourselves and feeding and fueling the defilements. And so it's weakening the defilements, it's developing the path factors, and while it is a very precisely conditioned environment. You know, this is not accidental that we're here and how we're practicing. It's, it's designed so that there's nothing to do but develop the path. You, know, you can try to distract yourself, but it's kind of difficult, actually, to get very far. So I want to speak about each of these um, path factors and how they uh, appear in our moment-to-moment practice here. And I want to start with the right view because it's right view that supports practicing correctly. You know, if we don't understand how to practice, we can practice, but all of our practices are going to be wrong practice. And that is not going to have the right effect. So we start with right view so that we can have the right view of practice and then practice correctly. 
The right view is, is of course, wisdom or understanding. How we understand practice makes all the difference in the world. It is the development of intelligence, wisdom, understanding that is supported by right view. A basic understanding that we stand on in order to develop a more refined understanding. So this meditation that we're doing is the work of the mind. And what we're doing here is practicing insight or practicing vipassana. What is the object? What's the purpose of practicing vipassana? Why do we do it? How do we do it? Mahasi Sayadaw, in quoting the Buddha, said, we do it in order to realize the Four Noble Truths. But how do you do that? Actually, we mention it over and over, but it sometimes feels like not enough. If I say to you, all that you need to do is observe the presently arising moment of physical and mental experience. That's it. That's it. If that's it, what are all those books at Google and on the bookshelf of all the spiritual bookstores saying? But that's it. In the Buddha's understanding, in the Buddha's teaching, in the right, in the Eightfold Path, the practice of insight is a result of paying attention to the moment, moment, moment by moment unfolding of the mind and body. And that's what we're trying to do. Of course, there's a lot of instructions, encouragement, and inspiration, and, and explanation of how to, why to, when to, and that's what most of the books are about. But it really is pretty simple. But behind it is a pretty profound understanding that if you can observe the mind and body as it appears and understand it, then you will choose to live in harmony with it if you really don't want to suffer. It's because we don't see things clearly, we don't see things correctly, we don't understand them correctly, that we end up struggling with the way things are. We want things to be different. You know, we want, we want it our way, not the way. And in that struggle, we, you know, there's tension in the body, there's tension in the mind, we suffer, we, we're in pain, and we get frustrated and disappointed. And so, to develop right view or the right understanding, there are three three ways to acquire this right view. And the first is through gathering information. There have been many uh, spiritual seekers before us. And many of them have uh, spoken eloquently or written eloquently about their experience, about their understanding, about their trials and tribulations. And we can read, we can acquire, we can hear, we can take in what they've said. To us, it is information. If it's true, it can be helpful. If it's not true, it can really distract us. So how do we know? We don't. We listen to speakers, we read books, we, we pick and choose based on our, the understanding that we already have, we pick and choose what resonates with us. And then we think about it. We use our intelligence to analyze it, to look at it, to evaluate it, to compare it to our own experience. And out of that intelligent use of the information, we come to some understanding. So the information provides us some understanding. 
our own intelligence provides us some understanding. And with that information and with that, our own innate intelligence, when we practice, we will gain insight. And insight is that, I was going to say flash, but that's not right. It's, it's that, aha, recognition of the way it is for us. You know, it's just, it's not, insight that I'm talking about is not the result of thinking something through. Not from analyzing, it's not, con- not necessarily confirming something you've read in a book and agreeing with it, but it's that, that understanding that, oh, that's the way it is for me. And it, these aren't, these don't have to be, you know, earth-shattering realizations. Just little things about, you know, the way you hold your posture that is really, you know, striving instead of relaxing, or the way that you kind of you just recognize certain habits of mind, and in that recognition, you realize, I don't have to do that, and then you let go, and it's just that personal knowledge of your own suffering and how to be free of that suffering that is uniquely yours. That's insight. That kind of insight is the bud of and the growing of right view. The right view of this is the way it is. Which as it develops and as we strengthen it through our practice, will become the the guiding force, if you will, of our life. If we choose to not suffer. So how you understand your experience through the information, through your own intelligence, and through your insight is really important. Because the wrong view of experience is delusion. There are many layers to delusion. I remember asking in my first three-month retreat, sitting in the back of the hall, I asked the teacher, I said, you know, when you speak about the three roots of the defilements, greed, aversion, and delusion, Greed, I get it. Aversion, I got it. Delusion, I don't get it. And the teacher was really skillful. He said, every time there's a Steve in your thought, that's delusion. Oops. (laughs) But that's just one layer of delusion. Saito Upandita likes to talk about the multiple layers of delusion that obscure our capacity to see things as they truly are. In one way, one obvious delusion that we all are very familiar with is just not being present for the present moment. You know, just the present moment is happening and you are elsewhere. That's delusion. I don't mean you don't know what time it is because you're not looking at the watch. I mean, you don't know what your body's doing, you don't know what your mind's doing because there's no awareness. That is thick, thick delusion. It's just being out of touch. Anybody familiar with that? <laughs> just don't want to be speaking to the, you know, the ungen, you know, those who don't know. I mean, it's so obvious. And yet, it's so hard to see, isn't it? You know, it's like, We can be deluded for, well, minutes. Hopefully not more than minutes. Hours? Those who are practicing aren't deluded for hours, are we? (laughs) You know, some people, and and you you may remember a time in your life when days or weeks would go by totally deluded. Lifetimes actually can go by totally deluded totally lost, totally not really recognizing what is going on 
That's scary. But somehow, once we start, once you get, once it gets pointed out to you, how to be present for what's going on, how to really recognize, how to be aware of what's going on, then that awareness keeps interrupting your delusion or the power of that delusion in the mind. That's one layer of delusion. A second layer that is similar but a little different is knowing the present moment wrongly. You know, now this this is subtler. At least we're in the present moment. You know, and we're kind of aware of the present moment, but we're understanding it wrongly. Let me see if I can give you an idea how this happens. Did you ever get angry at someone and blame them? Did you ever get angry with someone and blame them? Yeah, I mean, of course, when we get angry with someone, we blame them all the time. And we think, I mean, almost universally, you make me angry. I'm not the only one that thinks that, am I? Right. Now think about it. Did that person make you angry? It's not possible. It is not possible for another person to make you angry. You make yourself angry. The mind, the the confusion in the mind, the aversion in the mind is your anger, if you will. It's not yours any more than it's theirs, but you know, to blame someone for your anger. Yes, of course, people do things, people act in such a way that, you know, it's unjust, it's whatever, it hurts you, you know. But when the anger arises in the mind, they can't stop your anger. Only we can get a handle on that anger. So we understand it wrongly. When we, when we blame someone else, we, are, we're, we recognize that anger is happening, but we understand it wrongly. That's delusion. Or we... Uh, a third, a third kind of delusion is we are paying attention to this mind and body and we think, well, this is the body, <laughs> this is the body I was born with. This is the mind I was born with. The mind that was born back in 1949 is still here. It's me. Well, this is a subtler, a subtler form of delusion. It's not so. There isn't anything about this body that was born 58 years ago. Nothing. So too with the mind. What was going on in the mind then and the, the you know, it's all changed. Now, and yet there is this mistaken belief that there is something in there that's me. Some, some real thing in there that's me. What we don't understand in this situation is that all that is happening in any moment is a mental and physical phenomena arising due to conditions which are totally impersonal. Well, m most of us don't understand that. You know, We might hear it, we might want to believe it, we might get a, an intuition of it, but that's not our experience. That's delusion. There are additional delusions, layers, you know, layers. As you as you work your way down through, you know, the the layers of delusion, they get subtler and subtler and more refined. There's another pervasive, common delusion, is that uh, this I that appears to be in here in this body or that I am or that seems to be the actor, the agent, the, the person, the being, the something that's doing all this 
is in control. Like when, you know, when seeing happens, I'm seeing. When hearing happens, I'm hearing. When anger's happening, I'm angry. What we fail to see in this is that impersonal conditions arising, giving a, a kind of birth to some experience that is being known, we, and we even think I'm the one who's knowing. This is a delusion, another layer of delusion. This is all happening kind of, um, impersonally. It's hard to see. It's hard to accept. It's, it's hard to even uh, understand what what they're pointing to, kind of when you hear it. But if we if we look closely at our experience, we will begin to confirm for ourselves that indeed this whole package is very impersonal. It's just happening. I don't mean to say that you're not experiencing it. You're not feeling it. You are, in a relative sense. There are additional layers of confusion, delusion, but the one that, the layer of delusion that insight practice addresses most directly is the mistaken belief that, well, let me ask you this. You know when you are, uh, probably there was a period of time today somewhere in the sitting where, you know, the, the body was unpleasant. You know, I had some uncomfortable sitting. And there's this little assumption that comes into the mind. This is the way it's going to be for the rest of the sitting. Or this is the way it's going to be for the rest of the retreat. Or you, you see, once again, how impatient you are. And you think, God, I'm an impatient person. There's a way that the mind takes a momentary perception of something and eternalizes it. Not only does it do it with unpleasant things, you know when you fall in love? Every one of us who has fallen in love has believed it was going to be that way forever. That's what falling in love is. That's delusion. (laughs) It is. Because... And it's because the mind doesn't yet know clearly and moment and moment to moment that everything is impermanent. We can hear that and we can agree. Yeah, sure, everything changes, everything's impermanent. But we don't live it. We don't live with that. We don't live that understanding. We don't really know that for ourselves yet. We've got it up here in our head. We see it occasionally. Moment, and there are moments we see it, but mostly... We do not. And we assume that there's some permanence to things, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, internal or external. It feels that way. But if we look closely, we will realize it is not. We also think things are satisfying. If I could just get, you know, well, my assumption is if I could just get what I want, then I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. You know what? Even if you get what you want, the satisfaction doesn't last very long. But there's still this assumption in the mind. You know, okay, well that didn't work. Maybe if I get this. You know, a new car, a new relationship, a little little more income, a better sitting. Maybe if I get enlightened, then I'll really be. You know, and, and we've seen hundreds of thousands of times that d- fulfilled desires don't deliver. They just don't. And yet, we're still creating more. That's delusion. Well, now you understand a little bit about the layers of delusion in the mind that have to be addressed by clear seeing. Boy. Greed, aversion, and delusion. Greed's bad enough. Aversion's terrible. But delusion is multiple. So the right view in practice is is essential so that we can practice, so that we can begin our practice with the view, you know what, 
This is just the mind and the body appearing in a moment. We may not believe it, but if we plant that idea in our mind and we continue to practice, we will, in time, begin to see that this is so. So that when you're practicing, try not to, or try not to own everything as, this is my feeling, this is my anger, this is my thought, this is my pain. It, when we do that, we reinforce a delusion, which we will see if we, if we keep practicing. Gee, there's a lot more to say. And, and so, anyway, you get the idea about right view. It's really essential to, to begin our practice with right view, and in time it will be confirmed with practice. Right thought, the second of the wisdom factors in the Eightfold Path. Traditionally, right thought means to cultivate thoughts of non-greed, harmlessness, and renunciation. But in practice, in our actual sit-down, pay-attention-to-the-present-moment, what thoughts support practice? What are the right thoughts, the right intentions to have? Well, to, to sit down and to understand, you know, we're just going to observe and pay attention to the present moment as it arises without expectation. That's one right thought. No greed for any particular experience. Okay? Without any resistance. No aversion to any experience that happens to arise. In a relaxed manner. Without anxiety or worry or fear of what might arise. Another right thought. It's having the right attitude in our practice. To, to not demand anything of our practice. To just, to just be with things as they appear, um, not trying to create anything, not trying to get rid of anything, not analyzing, not trying to figure out, having no agenda other than to just be with, just to observe and understand, as we, as we will, what this moment is. It's also to um, keep an eye out for assumptions, assuming things are going to be this way forever. Keeping an eye out for any assumptions that mm, sneak into your practice. It's also having the understanding that even when experience is good, we have to be careful not to indulge in it. Why? Because indulging is greed. When experience is bad, we have to be careful not to feel... Um, overwhelmed or resistant or try to avoid it. Why? Because unpleasant conditions come. Trying to avoid them is aversion, feeding the defilements. Striving to accomplish our goal, being in a hurry, if you will, to, to, to finish the path, finish the practice, is also greed. All of these are, are, are wrong thoughts in practice, wrong attitudes in practice. And they come up, you know, time and time again. You'll see as you're practicing that there's a little bit of leaning into the experience with some expectation. Ooh, leaning away from experience with a little bit of resistance. You know, wanting to hurry it up. These are all wrong thoughts. To be noticed and to be adjusted, to, to adjust to in our practice. And when we're able to uh, approach practice with the right attitude or right thoughts, then actually there's a very open, receptive, accepting quality to the mind. It doesn't mean that everything's pleasant. But even when something's unpleasant, there's a, a kind of a, a wholehearted willingness to experience it, to learn from this experience. What is this? How does it arise? How long does it last? How does it leave? In the course of all that, 
you might notice that I haven't uh, I haven't mentioned that we have to be paying attention to the breath or the body or thoughts anything can be known in fact everything will eventually be known there's no single object that we need to attend to that we need to see clearly it's whatever the, is arising in the present moment that we approach with this attitude. So we have right view, right thought. And then I'm going to briefly, just briefly mention the right speech, right action, and right livelihood. They are important even in the moment. Right speech is internally, mostly we're keeping noble silence here, but internally, what are you saying to yourself? Right speech involves the truth, speaking the truth. Are you acknowledging the truth to yourself? Being kind, are you acknowledging what you're seeing kindly to yourself? Being gentle in how you approach it? Are you being harsh, demanding, uh, insistent? Or are you being gentle with what you see in yourself? Uh, is it beneficial? Are you able to recognize the... If you were to articulate what's going on in your mind, would it be beneficial? So we're keeping an eye on right speech, not because we're speaking, but we're, we're, we're monitoring what would come out if we were speaking our experience. Right action is to do no harm, to do no harm to yourself, to do no harm to others, awakening a sense of uh, conscience, modesty, so that uh, non-harming is preeminent. Right livelihood, the li we're not talking about what kind of job you have outside of the retreat. The right livelihood for a yogi is to make practice the most important thing you're doing. Just to not allow uh, other activities to, dis to detract, to take you away from your practice. That's the right livelihood for a yogi in intensive retreat like this. I could go into more detail, but I want to move on to and say a little bit about right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Because this is the uh, training in samadhi, or tranquilizing the mind, or calming the mind down. Right effort. Right effort's really important because wrong effort is so damaging. What is right effort? As you sit, here, now, listening to the talk. Feel the sensations in your right hand. Can you feel those sensations? How much effort did that take? Not very much. You didn't have to hunch your shoulders, furrow your brow, contract your gut, to kind of have the right effort to feel those sensations in your hand. None of us did. All it takes is a very precise, careful attention. That's all the effort that's needed. But it's needed in every moment. It's not how much effort and energy you're arousing. It's how precisely and continuously you're attentive. And the effort that we make in, in this practice is uh, mental effort. It's intelligent effort. It's not muscular effort. It's how attentive we are to the mind and what the mind is doing. Because we can feel those sensations in the hand because the mind is paying attention. In each moment, noticing what the mind is paying attention to. That's all that's required. But that effort needs to be continuous from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed. Being persistent, being patient, but keeping it in, in uh, we need to be balanced because sometimes it can feel like so little effort, so little intention in there that we just drift off into la-la land. And so we need to be honest with ourselves. Are we really using the mind? Are we really aware of what the mind is noticing or doing now? And it's that's mental energy. That's the effort that's needed. 
With that effort, with that kind of effort, mindfulness will develop. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is, well, it's said that the characteristic or the, 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 the quality, I guess, of mindfulness is to remember. And it doesn't, I don't mean to remember things in the past. It's to remember the present moment. It's to, it's to recognize the present moment. It's to remember that this present moment is happening and it is being known. That's what mindfulness is. It's to remember this present moment. To remember to be present for this moment. We could say it's to recognize the present moment or it is to feel knowingly the present moment. It is just to know the present moment. <clears throat> but this work of developing awareness is not easy. It's, it's, it's not difficult. It's very simple. But it's not easy to do continuously. Why? Because of our habits of mind. We are so accustomed. We're so used to our defiled habits of mind that we don't even see them. We can indulge in them for minutes or more and not recognize and remember or recollect or know or feel the present moment. When we're lost in our thoughts, the obsessive defilements are having a play day. And mindfulness is nowhere to be seen. It is the continuity of this very simple awareness, the recognition of the present moment, with that minimal energy that it takes. It is the continuity of those moments of awareness that deepen concentration. Many of us have a mistaken belief that concentration requires intense focusing. That's not, that's not concentration. Concentration or collectedness of mind occurs with the continuity of awareness. Sometimes we try too hard. We misapply our energy, our effort. And instead of getting concentrated, we get a headache. Wrong effort. Just because we focus doesn't mean what we're focusing on is wholesome. Concentration is one of those factors that can be developed both in a wholesome way and in an unwholesome way. We can be just as concentrated doing something unskillful as doing something skillful. So we need to be really careful that the awareness and the understanding is there that recognizes what is skillful and what is unskillful. And this is the work of wisdom. To recognize, it's the task of mindfulness to just know. It's the task of wisdom to understand, is this skillful or is this unskillful? That's the role of, of wisdom in our, in our practice. And the course of practice is a refinement uh, or developing a refined understanding of what is skillful and what is unskillful. Mentally, physically, verbally. Because to act skillfully leads to peace, contentment, happiness. And to act unskillfully leads to some form of suffering. This is the path we're developing. Right view, right thought, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, resulting in right speech, right action, right livelihood. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change.
when your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, you will will naturally practice more. And this will help you to do well in life.